chapter 5. So we're continuing our series in the book of Galatians. And uh, throughout the book of Galatians, it's been quite a journey through Galatians, the book of Galatians thus far. Well, if you're new with us, what we've seen is that Paul helped to start this network of churches in the Galatian region. And shortly after Paul left, these really new Christians, this was uh, the Gentiles, there was this group of Gentile folks who really didn't have a religious background. And so they understood the truth of the gospel was that they had been saved through Christ and Christ alone. But then as soon as Paul leaves the area, a group of Jewish Christians come and they begin to help these, you know, help nudge these folks along that, well, Paul didn't really mean you're saved by grace alone. You're really saved by grace plus obedience to the law. And so these young believers begin to buy into that. And Paul catches word of that. And Paul is grieved in his spirit because he calls that literally a false gospel. He says you, you're clinging to another gospel. And so the book of Galatians is really Paul's plea to these young churches to remember the truth of the gospel and where their hope is found above all things. And so as we last week we looked at Galatians, the first half of Galatians chapter 5, and in verse 1, Paul reminds them that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul tells this young church that we've been, we've been set free in Christ for freedom. Like, don't buy back into a yoke of slavery as they, like you used to live under when you lived under the ways of the world and the ways of the flesh. And then at the end of that section, he paints these contrasting images of what it looks like when the church operates in such a way. In verses 14 and 15, he said, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is a, a beautiful sentiment. But the question then comes, how do we do that? What does it look like to be a people who cling to the gospel, who hold to the truth of who Jesus is above all else? And how does that affect our life? How do we live our life on a day-to-day -day level? Today, Paul takes a bit of a turn in this letter, and he gets a little bit more practical, just a little more down-to-earth. What he doesn't want the church to believe, he he. he he, there, there is a the tendency of our heart, we've talked about this multiple times, our tendency is to distort the gospel to either legalism or license. The Jewish Christians tended towards legalism. They wanted to use the gospel like the older brother as a way to attain righteousness on their own. Okay, And, and so legalism gave them power. On the other hand, the, the opposite of that is to use the gospel as license, that because Christ has paid, the de paid our debt, we can really live however we want here and now, and there's really no need for a violent pursuit of holiness. And that also is not true. And Paul wants the church to understand that. And so today, he gets pretty specific about sin and repentance. And that's where we're at in this text today. And he's going to tell them, like, the difference is, like, they, when you seek to address sin solely by the law, and then seek to repent out of your own power, Paul wants the church to understand that's void, and that's just going to lead to either pride, because you falsely think you're accomplishing it, or it's going to lead to despair, because you realize you can't. So instead, today, Paul is going to encourage the church to walk in the Spirit, and that to be led by the Spirit as God's people is to be led in what true repentance and what true faithfulness looks like. So we're going to start in verse 16. It says, with verse 16, it says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. To walk in the Holy Spirit first means that the Holy Spirit must live in you. That the Holy Spirit is God's gift to his people. So it means that first, but secondly, it means that we have to be open and sensitive to the influence of the Holy Spirit. That to be a believer is to be one in whom the Spirit resides, but yet oftentimes like growing in the gospel means growing in our sensitivity to and our, uh, our humility to be led by the Spirit. And third, it means to pattern our life after the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an easy thing to just hear. Like, that's an easy third point to just write down. But, like, bear with me and just take a second to consider what I just said and what Paul is going to say. You pattern, you are called to pattern your life after the Holy Spirit's influence, after, as to the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. Your life 
Every aspect of your life, every aspect of your life is meant to be a reflection of the Spirit leading you and a response to the leading of the Spirit in you. Every aspect of your life. That's heavy for the the church in Galatia. That's heavy for us. And the Boise commentary, he says, Life by the Spirit is neither legalism nor license, nor a middle way between them. It is a life of faith and love that is above all of these false ways. Paul is reiterating what Christ himself told the disciples. We're going to look for, uh, just going to spend a few minutes looking at John 14, verses 15 through 20. And Christ himself says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. These words Jesus speaks to the disciples are spoken just hours before the greatest event in the history of the world was to take place. The greatest act of love in history, that being the death of the incarnate Son of God in place of sinners. That Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a brutal death, that there would no longer be condemnation for those that are his. He's about to lay down his life for his sheep, and these sheep, not not just sheep, these 11 precious friends of Jesus, these apostles, they are confused, they are fearful, and they are in need of much encouragement because of what they are about to face and come up against in the loss of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is doing for them. And not only for them, but for you, for everyone who believes in his name. He encourages them by reminding them that while, well, despite what's about to happen, they are about to receive power and leading beyond what they could ever imagine through the power of the Spirit. His message to them is that when he dies, he will live again and will send us the Spirit. And then after he dies, once he returns and he comes back, his very last time he talks to the disciples here um, on, on earth before ascending, he tells the disciples, wait on the power of the Spirit. It's important as Christians, like oftentimes, if you pull the room of Christians as to what the Holy Spirit is, you probably get some weird answers. Like we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as this kind of theoretical, figurative image and not the power of God dwelling inside those who are Christ's. And so I want to spend a little time before we look at the rest of this text in Galatians, just dwelling for a moment on the significance of the power of the Spirit. I want to make two introductory observations about what we saw here in John 14. One, we know that God loves the world. Like, he says that, John 3.16. We, we know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But, here in this text, we see that there is a, there is, God loves the world, but there is a special love for those that are his. Okay, that those who belong to Jesus, like that is a a saving love. They become heirs to the kingdom of God. Okay, that God desires all men to come to repentance. But those who are rescued by Christ are loved in a, a special way, a powerful way that comes with great gifts, including first and foremost, that of the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, like I've used this analogy before, but like I love kids in general. Like, I, I love being around kids. I'm so happy. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be a part of a church where we have that 10 to 1 kid to adult ratio. It seems like maybe that's just in my head. I feel like I live in a house with a 10 to 1 adult to kid ratio. So I love that. But the way I love my kids is different. It comes with, like, all that I have is theirs. They're heirs to everything I have. That's, there's, there's something significant in that. So God loves the world. But here in this text, he says, for those that are his, there's, a, there's more to it than that. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They receive the gift of righteousness. 
The love, this love is different. This love accompanies great gifts. It tells us in verse 16 and 17 when it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. In verse 19, it says, And yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And then, and we didn't read this, but verse 22, it says, Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> like, that's, to me, that's one of the funniest little parentheses in the Bible. Like, just to be clear, not Iscariot. Just a random dude named Judas, okay? Let's just really need it to be emphasized. He said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Like, that's a perplexing statement that Jesus just makes. So it's clear from verses 17, 19, and 22 that this gift of intimacy and help and love being promised in these verses is something the world cannot see, does not know, is not given, and does not experience. What's promised here is something so personal, so intimate, so relational that the world cannot achieve it. And all of their great accomplishments and all of their technology and all the towers that they can build, they cannot access the power of the Holy Spirit outside of the gift of Christ. And so who is the Holy Spirit? The Spirit is the greatest gift that's ever been given. More commitment than an engagement ring, more influence and power than money, more just robust and powerful than any gift that has ever been given in the history of the world. The word for spirit is ruach in Greek and pneuma, or is ruach in Hebrew, and it's pneuma in Greek. The term pneuma is used 90 times referring to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and ruach is used 250 times in the New Testament. These terms can refer to wind, breath, energy, and motion. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit is God's power and presence among his people and in his people. This term is so broad that it's hard to like, it would have just been a mysterious term to the people of these days who, who would re have related it to wind, breath, energy, motion. Ultimately, it's a mysterious term because it's profoundness, the profoundness of its implications are more than our minds can wrap our head around. The Holy Spirit is the very presence and power of God amongst and in his people, in you, Christian. The Holy Spirit is divine, is fully God, is omnipresent, meaning the Holy Spirit is everywhere at all times. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent, meaning it is all-powerful is omniscient, meaning has all knowledge, is eternal, meaning has no beginning, has no end, and is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy, pure, perfect, and sacred, and resides in the children of God. The Holy Spirit has divine attributes, but the Holy Spirit also has personal attributes. Much like the, the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit can be lied to. We see that in Acts 5.3. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, Ephesians 4, 30. The Holy Spirit can be resisted, Acts 7, 51. <clears throat> and here maybe is the scariest of all of these. The Holy Spirit can be quenched. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. The Holy Spirit can be resisted, can be pushed back on. It can be quenched when we, when we put other things in our life to seek to drown it out, like Sometimes we can accomplish doing that. Sometimes we can accomplish doing that for a great period of time. This is the, to, to quench the Holy Spirit is ultimately to, to live lives of Jesus plus anything. Like when anything else in our lives takes precedence over Jesus. Like when our life is not, it is not a reflection of the Spirit in every way, then ultimately we slowly but surely quench the Spirit. And the good news of the gospel is that doesn't mean the Spirit leaves. And God can renew that in us. And the Spirit still speaks and the Spirit still leads. But we need to return to God's word. That, that, might, that, that, that we might hear clearly. That we might drown out all of the things that cause us to quench the Spirit. Many of us, we, we can do that for a great period of time. And we know that we're doing that. Because we hear that voice. Like we know, we, we feel that prompting. 
But we do our best to like just just to throw everything in front of the door of the house that is our hearts. We're we're like the people in the house stacking the dresser up, putting the TV on top of it, like the cartoon, you know, like that. We're the the yeah, we're Bugs Bunny. We'll just be piling everything up in front of the door. Like man, we do that to the doors of our hearts. But ultimately, he doesn't leave the door. I stand at the door and knock. Christ tells us. The Bible uses many different names, titles, and symbols to paint a portrait of the Holy Spirit. And each represents what he does and who he is. For example, the Bible uses symbols such as fire, wind, water, wine, and a dove. The biblical names and the titles of the Spirit can be divided into three categories. Who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit is, and what the Holy Spirit does. In terms of who the Holy Spirit is... He is called in Scripture the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, the power of the highest. In terms of what the Holy Spirit is, in Scripture he is called the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of life, the Spirit of might, eternal Spirit, and Spirit of truth. In terms of what the Holy Spirit does, he is referred to as the spirit of grace, the spirit of judgment, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of counsel, and the spirit of revelation. Martin Luther once said this, I believe that by my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctified and persevered me in the true faith. Martin Luther here acknowledges the Holy Spirit on being the power through which he, is, he even looks to God or has been rescued by God. Not his own reason, not his own strength. Like, like there's nothing about the gospel that appeals to who we naturally are other than potentially a Get out of jail free card in Monopoly, okay? Like nothing about the gospel is a call to die to self and ultimately to live a life in reverence to the Father and fully putting ourselves on the cross, putting our dying to self in every way. Nothing about that is, is, is attractive, but Martin Luther rightly says, my own reason or strength wouldn't have led me to that. But the power of the Holy Spirit enlightens me with his gifts, sanctifies me, perseveres me to the true faith. And so with all of that said, just a quick snapshot of who the Spirit is. We could easily do a whole sermon series on that. We move forward with what Paul is saying here in the book of Galatians. So again, verse 16, But I say, walk by the power of the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The truth is, for those who are in Christ, even though the old man, like the the man, the woman that you were before Jesus took hold of you, even though that man, that man, that woman was crucified with Christ and is dead and gone. Romans 6.6 6 tells us the old man is dead and gone. His influence lives on through the flesh. And we battle. He, he battles against us as we seek to experience God. And this will be the way that it is until the final anecdote is given by God and that being a perfect resurrected body. Up until that point, the Christian... Deep down in our hearts, there's still, the old man has been crucified, the old man is gone, but deep down in my heart, there's still remnants of what I experienced and learned during that time in my life when I was led by the flesh, even if it was a small season of my life. Like, it, like, like any wound, like any baggage, I still carry baggage, and that's called the flesh, and that's still in me. That no longer rules over me. I'm no longer a slave to that, but that is still, there's still remnants of that that I have to fight against. And Paul, and Paul clarifies that when he says there in verse 5, like the things you want to do. He says, against these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So he's telling Christians, like to be a Christian doesn't mean that sin loses its allure. It doesn't mean you want absolutely nothing to do with it. 
but it means you're dependent on the power of the Spirit to overcome that. He says, like, these are still going to be the things you want to do, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we no longer have to be slaves to the flesh. Sarx is the term, the Greek word translated flesh. When Paul speaks of sarx, he means all that a man is and is capable of is a sinful human being apart from the unmerited intervention of God the Spirit and his life. So when Paul talks about the flesh, he talks about those things we are capable of outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. I, 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 like, that's something we don't consider often, but something we rightly should. And Paul encourages the church to consider and be aware of because he says like those things are opposed to the spirit that we now walk in. Again, uh, Martin Luther, when the flesh begins to cut up, the only remedy is to take the sword of the spirit, the word of salvation, and fight against the flesh. If you set the word out of sight, you are helpless against the flesh. I know this to be a fact. I have been assailed by many violent passions. But as soon as I took hold of some scripture passage, my temptations left me. Without the word, I could not have been helped. I could not have helped myself against the flesh. And so Paul, Martin Luther rightly concludes, like this is a battle that we fight and God has given us tools to, to fight in those. Like the Spirit leads us to those tools. The Spirit speaks to us most often through God's word that he has granted to us. Would we not, would we not take for granted the tool that we have as in the fight that we are in? Those given the gift of the Spirit, he says in this passage, are no longer under the law. Okay, But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, verse 18 says. This is because the law is no longer needed. In the Spirit, God writes the law on our hearts. Like we, we, it's, not that, it's not that the law isn't useful anymore, but it's that the Spirit of God now lives in us. We have the law internally. The Spirit leads us on what is good and what is true. This is the great works of the new covenant. This was promised in the old covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33 I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When he says that if you're in the Spirit, you're not under the law, it's because the, the law the laws ran its course, it did what it needed to do for a time. It's like you would be you're far more effective in preventing crime. If you take a police officer and put him on every corner of the city, then you are if you're just posting ordinances somewhere. Like ordinances, like they can be helpful for a time, but ultimately it's a significant thing to, to be redirected in a personal way. And ultimately for us, the inner influence of the spirit is far more effective. It's far more powerful. It's not the law served its place for a time, but now we have something far greater pointing us to Jesus. So Paul's telling them this because... He, he wants them to understand that when he, his, his pushing them away from the law isn't to diminish what the law represents. We're still to seek, to seek holiness. But the, 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 the weight of that's even greater now because of, it's, it's a reflection of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And he says in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Okay? He's going to get really specific here for a minute but but before he gets specific he says the works of the flesh are evident meaning this isn't rocket science you can make this in your head you're tempted to we're all tempted to justify in our head well is that really am i is looking at that really you know like we, we can talk ourselves into all kinds of things paul's stopping them saying like don't stop it stop the silliness the works of the flesh are evident, especially if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And then he goes and he lists these. He says sexual immorality. Many translations, uh, they, they list this as adultery. Impurity. That means he wants to expound on that. He's saying you know, like well, adultery is mentioned over and over in the Old Testament, but it's not just that. He wants them to understand it's more than that. He says impurity, meaning sexual that, 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 that involves sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. So he's saying not just adultery, but sexual activity that happens amongst those who haven't committed themselves through marriage is impurity. He says sensuality. 
expounds even further. The first three are really all based around sexual sins. He says that that, that term sensuality means sexual obsession. Okay, This would include viewing pornography, the lust of the eyes, that these things. And then he moves on to relational sins, idolatry. That means putting anything in our lives before God. Okay, like God is worthy of our glory above all else. He sits second fiddle to nobody, to no job, to no human, to no thing that you give your life to. Idolatry is anything we put before God. He uses it, he says, sorcery. Okay, now this is, when we think of sorcery, we automatically think of occult practices, and, and there's certainly an implication in that. Like, that's certainly part of this. But Paul actually uses the term pharmakeia, which is the term from which we get the term pharmacy. And so this also includes, like, drug use, okay? That, that, in the, that in these times, those were really tied together, that part of occult practices were taking hallucin- you know, drugs that would induce hallucinations and those things. So he's, when he says sorcery, he's tying all of that together. Enmity meaning hatred, being outwardly opposed to somebody, the Holy Spirit doesn't lead us to that. Strife. When he says strife, it means to to have a contentious spirit, to be someone that's just kind of always looking for a fight, even with other believers. Like, to be a person of strife, to have a contentious spirit, isn't something that the Holy Spirit leads us to. Jealousy, meaning constantly lusting after the possessions of others and the lives of others. Fits of anger means being quick-tempered, being somebody like uh, being somebody who's prone to say things they shouldn't say. Like if you're somebody who finds yourself kind of flying off the cuff at every little thing, you're constantly saying things to people that you think, oh, that was mean, I shouldn't have said that. The Spirit doesn't ever lead us to that. That's never the Spirit's leading. Rivalries. This term rivalries, he's talking about self-obsession. Like, are you somebody who's all, like, are you the main character in your own story? Like, is, does, the, does the rest of the world really revolve around you? To live as one who, um, to, to live a rivalry type life is to, see, is to put yourself before the good of your brothers. Then he uses the term dissensions and divisions. And then he's essentially saying, like, finding a way to be divided instead of united Okay, like this is I think this is really he's speaking again to kind of this network of churches. And he's pointing out that like we can find all kinds of ways to be divided when ultimately we we tend to not focus on the things that unite us in Christ. Envy, meaning bitterness. He he, like you notice that envy is a different word than jealousy because he's kind of got a different twist on it. Meaning it means bitterness, entitlement, that we can become envious and that leads us to, to be bitter of the, maybe the life circumstances of others. We begin to, to really wrestle with what we deserve and what we're entitled to. And that's not the posture the Spirit leads us to. That's not a posture that reflects Christ, who though uh, he was in the form, form, existed in the form of God, did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped. Drunkenness. There is not one exception to this in all of Scripture, ever. Ever. Not a Friday night when I'm by myself on the back porch and I'm really not going to hurt anybody. Not it was a special occasion. There's zero exception to this. This doesn't mean just, and he's not just referring to wearing a lampshade on your head. He's referring to like, like, are you the kind of person that you really can't get through the day without having to have those couple beers after work every day? Like if that's you, the Holy Spirit's not leading you to that. That's not to the glory of God ever, nor is the lampshade ever. His Bible is very clear about drunkenness. And then he says orgies. Now, this term is really translated revelries, okay, which includes what, you know, the, the typical thing that we associate in our mind with orgies, which was a huge problem in this day. We tend to think of uh, us living in a sexually depraved culture today, and that's true, but it was just as much, if not more so, in Paul's day. But this term revelries is really, it's bigger than that. It means, like, as God's people, we're called to be a celebratory people. Like, we should party... Our parties should be the best parties because we have the most to celebrate. But they should also be parties that glorify the Lord and are about him. And like he should be the object of our celebration. 
A revelry, what Paul's talking about, is the opposite of that. It's parties that come out of license where a Christian really has to lower themselves a little bit for that evening. Like we've kind of got to take off that holiness and leave it at the door and kind of got to make some questionable decisions for a little bit. Paul's saying like the Spirit doesn't lead us to that and he doesn't rejoice in that. And then he says, and things like these. Okay, like Paul wants to make clear, I'm not giving you a new Ten Commandments. Like Paul knows what the church will do with this list. They'll put these things on the wall and people will make sure they're not doing these things. The Spirit is in you. He leads you. There are sins today that really didn't exist in the same way back then. The Spirit still leads. And that's where and things like these comes into play. And he says, and after he lists these things, he gets really serious for just a moment. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul warns God's people that if you, if you, if you engage these things, like these things become who you are, if you choose to live that life of license, to choose, like some of these sins fall more in line with that life of legalism. If your salvation is anything other than Christ, if you embrace these things and do not turn from them, you don't, you're, not, you're not on your way to the kingdom. You're not his. Paul warns God's people to repent. And he is unashamed in that. And continually. And he says, like, I warned you about this. I'm warning you about this now just like I warned you before, Christian. Turn to me, turn to God, turn to the way that I'm looking. Like Paul continues to point them to himself in the sense of how he's been transformed by God and one who used to live for self, his eyes are now fully on the Father. And Paul wants the church to respond to that. And that call comes all throughout scripture in Joel 2, 12 through 12, verses 12 and 13. The Lord calls to Israel, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Here in the book of Joel, like God gives a picture of repentance. Like what Paul's trying to explain to the church in Galatia is you have to, I'm warning you, turn from these things. And God says, God says the same thing to the church in Israel. Return to me with all of your heart. That repentance has to be with all of you, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. It was, it was customary in that time to tear your garments as a sign of repentance. And God's ultimately saying, like, I don't care about the signs or what you do or what things look like on the outside. Like, no, like, I'm concerned about the condition of your heart. Return to me with all your heart, with weeping, with mourning. In the Old Testament, God's people would, would express these signs, but they were really just signs. They were just, they were just trying to be, like, obedient to the law. But God says he's concerned with the condition of their heart. More than caring about the proper signs of being upset about their sin, God cared that they were actually grieved over them in their hearts. Grieved to the point uh, that, the, that he paints this picture. And then in Psalm 51, 17, this is viewed, viewed commonly as the great psalm of repentance. And David reminds us in this, in the psalm, that God does not delight so much in the outward signs of repentance, which included like making a sacrifice, but he's concerned about the heart. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is not talking about the shame and condemnation that the enemy wants to heap on you. That's not what this is talking about, but a godly grief. Paul wants the church to have a godly grief for their sin, a grief that breaks us and leads us to run from sin. Like he says, I'm warning you that those who, who do these things won't inherit the kingdom. He's saying, like, don't you understand? Would you do a church? Do you understand what's at stake here? He wants us to run from sin and run to the Lord that he might renew us, that he might give us new affections through the power of the Holy Spirit. That leads us to the question then, how do we do such things? How do we repent? True repentance, like all good things, like all good things, is a gift of God. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25 tells us that God granted them repentance. We must prayerfully seek the Spirit, asking him to lead us to repentance, to give us the gift. 
We also have to acknowledge the number one obstacle in obtaining a broken heart, especially in the world that we live in. This is one of the the primary struggles of legalists infiltrating the Galatian church. It's the, this, this is the, one of the primary reasons that Paul is just trying so hard to grab hold of the Galatians. As a performance-driven people, our neglect of the relational aspects of sin can keep us from true repentance. I mean that we can view sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy with God. When this happens, the only grief we experience is our disappointment and our inability to do what is right. And not that we've despised the living God. Like, I, I, and I'm guilty of this. Like, when my repentance is merely like, man, I, I, I could have done better. I could have. And that, that really stinks. I, I think more of myself than that. I expect more of myself than that. That can be useful, but that's not repentance. Repentance is what I did before the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, 9, why have you despised the Lord, the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? When we sin, we are guilty of finding our satisfaction in another besides Jesus. Rather than the, the only one who can satisfy, we have turned to lesser things. And that's why David said this to the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned. When we gaze at the glory of the Lord, it leads us to repentance because we remorn having taken our eyes off of that glory that he deserves. And the opposite of that, the the work of the Spirit, what the Spirit does, what the Spirit leads us to, Paul points out, he, he lists those things starting in verse 22. He says, like, those things are all, like, that's our baggage from old. That's the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit leads us to, the Spirit leads us to love. The Spirit leads us to, like, not to bitterness over what we wish we had, but love that's reflecting of what we've been given in Christ. That if I have nothing in this world, I've been given the love of the Father through Christ. If I have joy, like, I may not always have happiness. I may not always have the things that I want. I may not have the things that I feel that I deserve. But joy comes through my, that I've been made an heir to the kingdom of God. I've been made heir to the kingdom of God. I may have nothing else. But when I have joy in that, when I, have, when I find peace in that, I, you, you read this book and you read these guys, you're reading David, you're reading Paul. Like, how do they ever experience peace? There was nothing peaceful about their life. We're talking shipwrecks. We're talking being stones. Like, we're, we're talking all these terrible things over and over again. And yet there's this peace. It's peace in knowing who they were, that they are first and foremost. Children of God. That's what the Spirit reminds us of. That's who the Spirit. That's who the Spirit wants. What the Spirit wants you to grasp. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's peace that comes from the power of the gospel revealed to us through the Spirit. Patience. It's acknowledging that we're all like, man. It's a it's a long road in this. We're all messed up. We're all messed up. We all have the flesh. We all still carry the wounds of how things were before the Spirit. And we have to be patient with one another in that. Remembering who we are. And we're all guilty of falling in that. But we're called to be patient. To be kind. To be, to, be, to be kind not only to each other, but to the world, to the place where God has put us. That We're not called to make war against the world. We're called to make war against sin. We want the world to know Jesus. We, we're seek, we're, we're, we seek to be a kind people. To, be, to, to seek goodness. Would we cling to, would we desire, would we base our lives around good things and not pedestrian things? Like your life, like your, your job's not worth basing your life around. Your hobby's not worth basing your life around. No, your, your appearance, your image, none of those things. Those are all terrible gods, terrible gods. Would we see goodness? Would we, like, despite what the world says, despite what the world values, the world values so many petty things. And we can get tempted to value the same things, but we're called to value good things. 
good things, holy things, whether the world likes them or not. We're called to faithfulness, to steadfastness. That we, we, we're called to stay the course. That to, to live in such a way, to be led by the Spirit, doesn't mean this is going to be easy, but means we're going to keep moving forward because he leads us forward. We're going to finish this life well. We're going to fail over and over again, and we're going to get up, and we're going to be faithful because of Jesus. We're going to be gentle. Gentle and patient with one another and with a world that desperately needs truth. And self-control. That the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That we're going to be a people who seek for holiness. Who seek to live upright lives. That church will not just be something we do on Sunday. That being a Christian won't just be something I set aside a little bit of time each day for. But all of my life, like like Paul uses the analogy of an athlete training for a race, I am seeking to grow in discipline to the glory of God. Not to earn my salvation. My self-control isn't so God will love me. I seek to be self-controlled because God loves me. And he says, against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This term, crucified the flesh, has great implications. Paul uses a profound word, a word that was described to the, a word created to describe the death of our Savior. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucified the flesh. That's what you're called to do. It reminds us, that I, want, I want four things about that word. That word reminds us of what Christ did on the cross. We don't need the, the law to motivate us. Christ Christ died on the cross on our behalf. Through Christ, we've we've been given everything through Christ. We've been made heirs to the kingdom. It reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we seek to reflect him and his humility in our own lives against our own flesh. It reminds us that we are called to take up the cross and follow him. There is no middle ground to the Christian life. There's no fence to sit on. Jesus doesn't accept that. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like, to be a Christian isn't just to live a good life. It's not like cultural Christianity is not acceptable. Christ and Christ alone is. And the call of the Christian life is to take up our cross and to follow him and to devote all of our lives to him. He will accept all or nothing. It reminds us, the term crucified, that death of the flesh is really painful. You cannot use that term crucified without putting an emphasis on the pain associated with. We get the term today, excruciating, comes from the term crucified. Like, we had to invent a word to describe that kind of pain. Paul uses this word specifically to remind us that the death of the flesh is painful. It's part of who we were. It's part of something we, we deeply want. Deep down. He, he says, like, like Paul says that about himself. He says, I desire to do the things that I should not do. And the things that I should do, I don't desire to do. The death of the flesh is painful. But it points our gaze to Jesus. It's a loving father teaching us what, what, what is really true and what is really good. The death of the flesh, as painful as it might be, would we see it for the grace that it is? That God, that when we experience, the, when the Spirit presses on us, when the Spirit urges us, leads us to kill the flesh, it's a sign of a God who loves us, that he wants those things to be gone, that he wants the cancer to be gone. He wants the things that make us sick to go away, and he wants us to be fully gazing at the beauty of who he is. And lastly, Paul's usage of the term crucified reminds us that our flesh must be dealt with decisively. Crucified, he says. He says, you can't can't play with this. We're to wage war against our sin because it keeps us from Jesus. And what's at stake is everything. Our flesh must be dealt with decisively, and we have to help one another in that by speaking truth and calling one another to that. Because Paul says in verse 25 and 26, as we kind of wrap up this text, 
If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here's the great warning of this for us as a church. Let us not become conceited. Let us not think that we have arrived, that we have it all figured out. To wrestle with sin is just that. It's a wrestle. It's a battle. All of us fight this fight all of our days, and we would be foolish to think otherwise. This is a, a prime ingredient to failing magnificently. Like, even though Paul demands these things from the church and calls them to repentance. He is not unaware. He is not. He doesn't lack being forthcoming about his own sin. That he recognizes, like he, he's not conceited. He's not speaking these things as if he sits in a higher chair, as he, if he sits as someone who has arrived at these things. He's saying as a fellow brother who does the things he shouldn't do, I'm telling you, repent. Just as Paul repented daily. So he's saying like, Don't become conceited. Don't think you sit in a judgment seat because you don't. Christ does. Christ and Christ alone sits in the judgment seat. Because our conceit doesn't only affect our hearts, but it lies to others and it beats them down. And that's where that next line, provoking one another, envying one another. He's warning them against what the very people who were infiltrating their church were trying to do. The church had been infiltrated by legalists, many of whom seemed to believe that they had arrived at something of their own merit. When you do that, it causes others to envy something that's not real. Okay, he's saying, like, don't stir up envy in one another. Like, when you pretend that you're something you're not, then other people see that and they get confused about who they are. And they begin to, you know, when, when, if, if the pastor of a leader stands up and tries to present being perfect, then, well, then other people begin to think, well, I guess that's what the Christian life should look like. When really, it's just that, any time that's ever, if I ever, if I ever present that, it's a mirage. Like, it's not true. I'm broken. I do the things I don't desire to do. I don't always know the right things to say that I desire to say. Like this whole, this, this, is, this is hard. To, to, it's like seeking holiness is hard. Living, uh, fighting the flesh is hard and takes all of our days. And some days I would rather sit and be bitter than really rise up and fight as God's called me to. We, we have to be real about that, about who we are, so that others will not envy something that's not true. When others appear to not struggle with sin, it leads to a false perception of the Christian life. It's for this reason that we need not hide our sin. We need not hide those things we wrestle with. As Christians, we acknowledge our struggle for the good of others. That that my struggle might be a testimony to who God is. This is especially true of leaders and pastors who feel the most pressure to paint this false picture. But Paul says that if I do that, I'm leading others to to envy something that's not true. I want to close um, just with with two truths for you this morning from this passage. There's a really popular phrase uh, that I've used many times, and it is a good phrase, and it is true. And that is, it is okay to not be okay. And Paul wants the church to know that. We must be a people who acknowledge our sin and who we, we, we need each other. We need the power of the Spirit. As, as we battle together, because we, we seek the fruits of the Spirit. But it's also not okay to stay not okay. That we live, we like, we have the Spirit. The Spirit leads us. The Spirit leads us to the fruits of the Spirit. And we must acknowledge our dependence on Him as He leads us and as He empowers us forward. We must fight the flesh and cling to the Spirit. The Spirit and the flesh, Paul says, they're not compatible as long as they're fight, like they, they, you gotta, you, they, it's gotta lose ground, man. The flesh has to back off. The spirit has to take over. They, they, those two things fighting inside you, man. You, you've, you gotta get on, you gotta get on this team of the spirit and fight the flesh. As a spirit-filled people, the ways of the flesh, we, uh, we don't only acknowledge those, we wage war against those, and we do it together. And that's, that's Paul's message to the church. It's like. You're not saved by the works of the law. You've been saved through Christ and Christ alone. But then Christ gave you a gift that is the Spirit. And the Spirit empowers us to overcome the flesh 
and to, to grow in our love for him and in holiness. I want to I'll sh- I share a quote with you as we close. Today, this quote is by Ed Welch, who wrote a book, a gospel and a book on addictions. And it says, there's a mean streak to authentic self-control. So Paul lists self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit. And in regards to that, he says, there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, but we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. And it's a war we've been called to together, and that because of Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, we have victory over. Would you pray with me this morning, church? God, you are good. You are good. Lord, you are holy. You are magnificent. You are worthy of your glory. It's all, would would it all be for you? Lord, would our lives be for your glory? Lord, do not, Lord, don't let us worship lesser things. Lord, turn our gaze away from false gods. Turn our, our gaze away from the things that we idolize and we seek comfort in. And would you turn our gaze to you? Lord, hope is found in you and, and you alone. Would we know that in our hearts each day? And would we live to tell others? Holy Spirit, lead us. Holy Spirit, if there is, if there be anyone in this room in which... Uh, in whom in which you have been quenched. Lord, we, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that that would not be true today. We pray that you would break forth, that you would take hold, that you would speak boldly. You, Lord, shatter their lives if you must. But Lord, turn them to you. To, to turn every their entirety of their life be bent towards you and be a reflection of your spirit. Lord, would you do that in me? Lord, would you do that in me? And thank you for this church. Thank you that we can be broken together. Thank you that you are good and that you love us. We are not worthy of such love. But you grant it. That you grant it. Uh, you grant it graciously. We love you and pray these things in your good name. Amen.